Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. Hospitals and healthcare facilities continue to struggle in the current economic climate. Many healthcare providers, squeezed by rising costs and reduced Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements, will turn to bankruptcy under Chapter 11. But healthcare cases present unique challenges because of the pervasive government regulatory regime and because the range of bankruptcy options must account for important patient care and privacy rights. With me today to discuss these issues and more are two leaders of ABI's Healthcare Committee. Bobby Guy is a partner in the Nashville office of Frost, Brown, and Todd and co-chairs the committee. Leslie Burkoff is a partner and chair of the Bankruptcy Department at Morick, Hawk, and Hamroff on Long Island, and she serves as special projects leader for the committee. Bobby and Leslie are among the lead editors of the new third edition of ABI's Healthcare Manual just out this week. Welcome, Bobby and Leslie, to ABI Podcast. Thank you, Sam. Sam. Glad to be here. First, uh, let me ask, uh, why uh, is there a need for this uh, new edition of the Healthcare Insolvency Manual? Leslie? Well, thank you, Sam. It is indeed the third edition, but we really felt, given a variety of factors, that it made sense to put something out uh, once again on this topic for The first reason would be that 2005 was the last time that an edition came out on the healthcare manual. That was the second edition. Since that time, uh, even though that book addressed BAPSIPA and included some of its developments and the impact of it in that book, you've now had close to um, seven years of cases that have applied those changes in the law that have struggled with and addressed the healthcare cases that are mounting with the downturned economy that we're all faced with across the board in many industries. But in particular, healthcare, as anybody that's reading the front page of any newspaper that you can touch lately, has been a tremendously focal point for the politicians and our government, especially since Obamacare came down and, as we all know, was recently challenged by the Supreme Court and they issued their determination as to upholding that the constitutionality of that statute. As such, we felt that not just the passage of time and the implementation of the changes in the law from 2005, but the impact of the economic changes and the sustaining of Obamacare warranted something new more up-to-date and more relevant to the current trend in the economy. Um, We've also taken uh, over time comments and our own views as uh, users of the second edition to evaluate that perhaps putting out a third edition in in a modified form in addition to the changes that we've discussed would be helpful by expanding specific topics such as tax exempt bond financing bringing more uh, information into the WARN Act and the implementation and impact of that, as well as the changes in the continuing care retirement community, uh, addressing how those kinds of filings have fared over the past seven years um, and the changes that uh, resulted as as such. Uh, 
so we felt it was current, we felt it was appropriate, and we felt that we were bringing something new to the table. As you can see eventually by the size of the book and the length of the chapters, I think we achieved our goal of bringing something out there that people, practitioners, lenders, uh, even lay people that are affected by these kinds of filings could find tremendously useful in dealing with them, addressing clients' needs, and responding to cases that may affect their own practices and client base as a result. Sam, we'd also like to thank the Supreme Court uh, for upholding the law <laughs> because it meant we didn't have to rewrite the entire book. That, that was tremendously helpful, I would agree. Bobby, how have you uh, uh, used prior editions of the book, or how have you known other uh, people have found the book uh, useful in their practice? I'll tell you that over the years in my own practice, I've, I've used it again and again and again um, and have watched other people do this with earlier editions, too. The funniest experience I had with an earlier edition was um, I mentioned it to a client on the phone one time and in a deal that was going on for several months, we were trying to buy a distressed health care facility. And uh, and after a while, when a few issues were coming up, and we were trying to try to we were trying to figure out how to resolve them in the bankruptcy, the client started sending me string sites of cases, saying, "Hey, what about this case? Or what about this case? And how do we deal with this?" And so I, I got three or four of these emails over the course of a week or two, and finally I, I looked in the manual and realized he was pulling them all out of footnotes in the manual. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I called the client up and I said, hey, um, great job reading the manual for us. Thank you. Um, is, is that where you're getting these? He said, yeah, yeah, that's where I'm getting them. So it was, um, it's one of those situations where if I hadn't had it at that point, um, I would have been in trouble because I wouldn't have known where this stuff was coming from. But the clients tend to enjoy these uh, as much as the lawyers do. Great. So I, I've found a lot of use for it. Great. Well, Leslie um, mentioned, obviously, the, uh, the health care law, uh, which is clearly the uh, biggest overhaul of the health care delivery system since at least uh, Medicare and Medicaid. What uh, effects do you think the uh, new health care law will have on providers that are facing a bankruptcy situation? Bobby, you want to start with that? Sure. Anytime you have a new law, you always have winners and losers. And what happens under the um, under Obamacare is that um, consumers win. And then healthcare companies have to adjust pretty significantly. Employers um, have to adjust, and, and there may be some argument that employers lose because of the additional healthcare costs of what they have to carry. Um, for healthcare companies specifically, there are new quality of care incentives. There's a push toward um, uh, accountable care organizations, which is which have been touted um, widely. Uh, and in their current form, I believe, probably will not continue. I, I think they're going to continue in a little bit modified form than what they are. Um, but the whole idea behind ACOs is they give incentives um, for people to be able to refer business and to be efficient, whereas you can't do that in normal health care law because of the regulatory requirements on anti-kickback and Stark. Um, so there are a lot of incentives built into Obamacare, and then there's the move to uh, electronic medical records, all of which create cost for healthcare providers and create 
change in the industry. So healthcare providers have to adjust. Those that are able to adjust um, will do well, but there will be a number of losers in this. And so it, it's it's going to cause some fallout within, within the industry and probably some consolidation within the industry, as well as creating some new cottage industry uh, opportunities like there have been for ACOs. The other thing that, that's important to understand about the Act is that um, Obamacare not only expands health care, but it also is an attempt to control costs. And so the federal government um, has been attempting significant, to pull in significant cost controls in health care um, and to control the growth each year of its spend on health care. And so with that, you're seeing a lot um, sort of tighter um, review of reimbursement you're seeing um, attempts to pull back fee schedules, like the physician fee schedule and other fee schedules for different providers, um, with with the providers who have the um, the lobbyists that are not as strong often taking bigger hits. And so the different industries, for example, in the mid 2000s, the imaging industry took a huge hit on its um, on its reimbursement. Um, whereas physicians at that point sort of won the battle to get more reimbursement, and it had to come from somewhere, so it came out of imaging. The result was a string of imaging bankruptcies over the next four or five years. Mm-hmm. So there will be winners and losers, and um, and it will also play out in the government's review of, um, of health care billing. Well, let's talk about um, the government's role uh, in these cases uh, because they seem to have a uh, uh, an even more outsized role than usual, whether it's related specifically to investigations for fraud and abuse, uh, trying to recover uh, money for the taxpayers, or in other ways. Uh, Leslie, can you address the dealing with the government in the healthcare restructuring arena? Well, absolutely. I think it's probably one of the more unique areas of law where you will see an entity, and this one, it's the government, and perhaps wearing a multitude of hats in terms of who is representing the government, but their role in the case is is far-ranging. Uh, you talked about the fact that there's an investiga- investigatory role. Um, sometimes those kinds of, uh, of investigations and the claims that flow from them, be it the, uh, the fraud for false billing, uh, a whistleblower claim that comes to mm-hmm. pass that with huge amounts of dollars and cents, and that was, uh, I think, by way of example, one of the Parkway cases flowed from that, that can actually lead the company to try to file for bankruptcy to address those kinds of claims. So they can be the impetus for the filing, or it can be a companion component that runs alongside of the bankruptcy case at the same time adding additional complicating factors. So you have that role in the first instance. You then have the secondary role of a creditor. Now, it could be claims for fraud, misuse of funds, uh, or, or any kinds of defalcations, but it also is a role just based upon the reimbursements. Um, the government can go ahead and audit the uh, claims process of the uh, healthcare institute uh, that's filed for bankruptcy, the entity that's filed for bankruptcy, and determine that there were overpayments, that the uh, coding was wrong, that they, um, again, a fraud or a misuse in terms of how they were recovering and can come back a year or two later or at some point in time later and say, guess what, we gave you X dollars, we really only should have given you Y, we want to 
take that back. And if you don't affirmatively give it to us, we don't really need you to. We're going to just simply offset or recoup, as the case may be, against future receivables. And they have the ability to do so to pull it out of the ongoing payment stream. So in that instance, they not only are owed the money, but they have the ability to, ca- to affect the cash flow coming in as the payor to the debtor and take it back and affect the outcome of the case going forward, um, which is a, an incidental piece we can talk about later in terms of uniqueness of healthcare financing. Then you have the various taxing authorities that are, again, going to appear from a governmental perspective, from monies that are owed, be it real estate taxes if the entity happens to own real property or lease real property, um, taxes based upon income, that's another role. And then you get into the second stage of it, of a bankruptcy case where the debtor's deciding what it's doing. Is it doing a 363 sale of its assets? Is it doing a plan? Is it it's trans, looking to transfer its provider number uh, to a third party? Well, at that point in time, you've got a couple of more layers for the government. You have the regulatory piece, which is the government's going to have some say about who's going to step up to the plate or be allowed to step up to the plate as a stalking horse and or a successful bidder. They interject into that process insofar as whether or not they are comfortable with that the purchaser or proposed purchaser meets all the regulatory requirements is uh, not overly involved in the geographic region. They may have too many hospitals or related facilities. They may not want them acquiring another one. They have the ability to somewhat control that process, which is slightly interesting to be both a creditor and the the funder and now the party that may be able to control by the regulatory scheme who's stepping up to that plate and could be successful. And then we'll add one more layer, the political piece of it. You have facilities, be it assisted living, uh, hospitals, uh, senior care, whatever they may be, in geographic regions where the government may have, again, started the bankruptcy by suggesting that this was a facility to be closed. We're familiar with those cases that filed as a way to step out of or avoid the Burger Commission effects um, or other similar commissions that said you need to shut down. Um, You have the political impact of the government saying, you know, we have three in this geographic region and a couple of them have filed. We like that one. We don't like that one. And from a political point of view, we're going to offer grants and funding and uh, support the debtor for this facility and not for the other. And that has a tremendous impact on the success of the case, the pressure that's brought to bear on the judge that's overseeing the case, uh, as well as the constituents that show up to be involved in the case. Um, I was involved in a couple of cases a few years ago. Um, One state in particular had multitude of them. And I remember going from one courtroom to the other where they were both geographically close to each other. And in one courtroom, you had the politicians waving their chits saying, hey, we're going to give grant money, and hey, we're going to support this facility. And you'd go down the hall, and it was deafening silence. They didn't care if the facility closed. They had their appropriate reasons for it, but it was night and day. And wasn't the lack of money. It was which one they wanted to survive for political reasons. So what's it like dealing uh, with the uh, with the government as a uh, as simply another another creditor, are they uh, more challenging than than uh, say other uh, uh, lenders or other players uh, in a typical Chapter Eleven case? Um, what I'll interject on that is, I think it depends. Um, they can sometimes be more of a challenge in the following 
situation where they have a bit more control, if you would, over pieces, as we just indicated, of the case than other players have. Um, and I've been involved in cases where they've taken action and shut the, literally shut the spigot of the funds coming in off, and you've been faced with, are you, are you terminating our cash flow here? Um, did you just violate the stay? Do they have exceptions under the police power? There's so many mm-hmm. different other statutory levels that you have to look at, you know, whereby somebody else that's funding money to a debtor doesn't have that right to just shut that off. You know, the government does it, and the question is, did they do it right? Did they do it wrong? Is it a police power? Is it not? Can you go into court? Can you get an order, you know, an affirmative uh, order to get them to turn it back on? Um, and there's also so sometimes you can deal with one lawyer who's answering to three different bosses. And they'll literally, and it's conceptual, switch hats in the middle of a hearing and say, okay, I'm appearing on this part now, this is my focus, but my boss on this division in this group on, on the sales side of it is going to you know, come up with something completely different. And it can get a little bit confusing, and it can get a little bit dicey, and they are the government. They're not, you're not appealing to the same kind of pocketbook that a private business mm-hmm. uh, might be viewing, but you're appealing to a political machine. And at times, if it isn't fitting within that politician's game plan um, or what they see happening in their jurisdiction, in their area, or violating regulation, they're sometimes unable to be as flexible as a private entity might be, not that they don't try some at times for the right case. Right. And, and just to give you an example without being specific for client confidentiality, uh, we represented a lender in a, in a very significant case um, that took a very long amount of time. It was significant to the area, the geographic area versus in the magnitude of cases that we all see. And as a lender, we worked with the debtor and got this case after several years to actually be ready to close on a sale of assets after problems with uh, qualification of the buyer, the buyer's ability to get a CON, the provider number. Uh, one thing after another, got a plan and reorganization got teed up. Um, and at the 11th hour, literally three days before the hearing on the disclosure statement, the government popped up and said, oh, wait, no, um, we, we don't like that tax deal. We're, we're, we're going to object to it. <laughs> and we're like, where have you been for four years? You know, this case almost died, and I, pardon the pun, kept giving it CPR as the lender because my best deal was getting it through. And we finally get that you know, almost there, and they came out with this, and we had a multitude of meetings, and the judge was anything but pleased, I have to tell you. And at the end of the day, there was a political desire to utilize the facility for a specific agenda item that was part of the motivating factor in this. Um, We were able to resolve part of it, then that agenda became first and foremost, and through some good lawyering, by a variety of people and a, an excellent judge who had patience, sort of was able to refocus everything, get the deal done. And the irony is when the politician went ahead and took public credit for saving the facility. <laughs> and I got the PR piece. I called my client and said, well, I must have missed something because they're the reason it almost died. But I'm so glad that they came in and saved it because we had nothing to do with it. <laughs> that, that's a very good example of the complexity of a healthcare case. Because what what complexifies it is not just the government, although that's a huge part, as Leslie's just outlined, all the government plays in the different hats they wear, but the regulatory scheme within which you have to um, to work 
um, adds a, a deep layer of complexity. And the, the reason is any healthcare facility, depending on the state, will have a little bit different regulatory scheme, but often there's a CON scheme, which is a certificate of need for whether or not you can build it or you can change it, um, and you can bring in different services. On top of that, um, you have licensure, so that you've got to have a license to be able to operate. Similar to any sort of hotel facility or anything else or any, any building, you have to have your normal building things like certificates of occupancy and those. You also have your provider agreements that come from the government for Medicare and then for Medicaid. Um, and then if you're doing a sale, you've got sort of the not-for-profit to for-profit conversion issues. And so those are a number of the regulatory issues that come up, irrespective of sort of fraud and abuse in, in this. And the government has it, – many levels of government are involved in all of those issues. And so it makes the case um, – it makes it stimulating for all those reasons and and can be very frustrating as well to try to get a simple solution to a very complex problem. And the other thing to think about is in context of each one of those statutes, there are numerous government agencies that can be involved. Right, right. And, and just one thing if I can add, although it doesn't pertain per se to the governmental piece of it, but you can't lose sight of in the uniqueness of these cases, it's very important to the parties involved to save a manufacturing company or to save a retail industry company. But you have people's lives here, and it takes it to a very different level with everybody that's involved in a case from the concern of if it fails and it closes and you move patients, you've got transfer trauma, you've got people who may never see their loved one again because they're moved too far away, um, you have the ebbs and flows of a bankruptcy case and cash crisis that affects the patients on a day-to-day -day basis, and it heightens it for the judge that is presiding over the case that there really are um, such a human level here, and, and as much as if you're representing the lender, the cash is your collateral, but you're, you're tied to the lives and the attention of these patients, and it just takes it to a very different um, level and perspective and concern, um, which, which is an overlay for whatever you're doing in sure. any of these cases. Sure. Um, and, you know, in one particular instance, when the, the court's hands was were tied because they were closing the facility, the state had said, we don't need it, we're closing it. And, and you had people come in from the community and say, if you close this, people are going to die. Mm -hmm. And this judge is sitting there and saying, you know, you have a lot, you know, you, you're often here, you're going to, people will lose jobs. And that's all significant and important. But judge, you close this hospital, no one's going to make it across town in time to live if they have a heart attack on the wrong side of town. And there's not much the judge can do about it other than perhaps give time and see if there's a creative solution to let someone else come in. But that's a whole different argument um, you know, when you're facing handling these kinds of cases from any different aspect, no matter right. who you are. I didn't want to lose sight of that. Yes, uh, communities uh, are affected uh, as well as the, the human uh, element uh, that you mentioned. You also... Um, discussed earlier uh, continuing care communities, retirement and assisted living communities. Um, obviously, with our sort of changing demographics and longer lifespan, these types of communities are growing in demand and importance. So my question is, do, do continuing care, retirement and assisted living communities present some 
special challenges when it comes to restructuring. Bobby, have you had experience with these types of facilities? Yes, and that's a great question. Um, when it comes to senior living facilities, um, they're much more like real estate deals with a health care overlay on them. And what happens is with the real estate market down so badly, it's resulted in a um, very difficult problem in senior living because people can't sell their homes to be able to buy into things like a continuing care retirement facility or to pay the monthly rent at a um, at an assisted living facility. So usually they would sell their home. That would be their the nest egg that they got from that is what they would use to pay for the end-of-life services all the way through, and now people can't sell. So that's that's become an issue that's been driving a lot of the senior living industry into trouble. Um, there are unique issues in all of this because of the regulatory scheme. For example, in a CCRC, which as a continuing care retirement facility has everything from independent living to assisted living to skilled nursing and then potentially memory care. So it has all, it's sort of aging in place is the idea. For that type of facility, um, you look at numerous different licenses. Like there may be a, uh, Illinois has what's called the Life Care Act. Um, that deals with sort of the buy-in um, that you have to pay to join a CCRC and deals with the independent living part of it. There are also um, the, skill, the licensure and pieces that go with the skilled nursing. Assisted living may be a completely different regulatory scheme. And so you have, first of all, financial distress in this industry because of the real estate market. And then you have, second, a number of different overlapping regulatory schemes and some um, which those are just the regulatory schemes for how um, how you have to operate the facility. You also have regulatory schemes for payment. For example, traditionally senior living, other than skilled nursing, has has been well skilled nursing and hospice has been private pay. Well, now there's a lot of insurance pay because there are a lot of long-term care plans that people have, and in addition. Medicare and Medicaid have begun to move into the area to try and find ways to reduce costs. Um, so historically, if you look at it, um, Oregon has been the state with the greatest number of sort of 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 reimbursed assisted living facilities and the best programs, or, or the most let's call it the most interventionist programs for funding assisted living. The state where I'm from, Tennessee, is at exactly the opposite of the spectrum. It funds skilled nursing and doesn't, it has not been progressive necessarily about funding assisted living. Mm -hmm. And so there are big differences from state to state also as you go through it, and it creates complexity. Um, I, I, I say all the time sort of that when you're dealing with health care, a deal is not a deal is not a deal. It, it's not simply being a deal lawyer or a bankruptcy lawyer to be able to handle these issues. It's a real specialty sort of niche that, that you have to get into. And, and from that niche um, practice, um, one of the goals of the book is that it helps inform everyone who is a general practitioner in the bankruptcy and insolvency area about the niche issues that they need to know um, as they deal with these. Um, to help prevent the pitfalls that come up in a healthcare scenario. Right. Well, Bobby and Leslie, we've uh, just scratched the surface here, but we're out of time for uh, today. We will invite our listeners to follow these issues in your committee 
uh, on your active uh, listserv in, in your committee and in future uh, educational panels at uh, ABI conferences by the Healthcare Committee. Uh, but I want to thank both of you for joining us today. It, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And we'd be remiss if we didn't give a thank you to the other uh, key players in getting this manual out, which is my um, uh, the other editor-in-chief, Tim Lupinacci from Baker Donaldson, Behrman Coldwell and Berkowitz, and Cliff Zucker, who is the other co-chair of the ABI Healthcare Committee uh, from J.H. Cohen. Yeah, Sam, thank you for having us. And I want to make sure that um, that we're clear that the efforts of, of numerous people went into this. And um, we're very, very appreciative. And we think the um, the readership will be very appreciative of the work that went into this from from a number of law firms and professionals who've worked very hard to bring this result about. Most of all, um, Leslie and the team that have gone directly into working on the publishing. So, And we thank you at the ABI for all of your hard work on it as well. For sure. We want to encourage people to uh, consider the new book for their library. You can uh, check it out at ABI's online bookstore uh, right on the homepage at abi.org. We also want to thank our audience for listening. There are more than 100 podcasts available at ABI World. Go to news.abi.org slash podcasts to see the menu of topics. Until next time, this is ABI Executive Director Sam Giordano saying good day. Good day.